0: Hello, you are back in the Feed the Ball Salon presented by Golf Digest. I'm Derek Duncan, Golf Digest Associate Editor for Architecture, and this is Volume 9 in our series of intimate discussions about golf design with golf architects. Structural architecture in the first decades of the 20th century was largely defined by the work and ideas of four men who came to be known as, unimaginatively, the Big Four, Frank Lloyd Wright, Mies van der Rohe, Le Corbusier, and Walter Gropius. Their contributions continued to define the field of architecture for several generations, and in many ways still do. Something similar happened in golf architecture over the last ten years, in which the design work primarily of four men, Bill Coore, Tom Doak, Gil Hans, and David McClay Kidd, or golf's own Big Four, has moved the art into a different space from where it previously was, redefining prevailing notions of how golf should look and play. These four are at the top of the call list whenever a major project or site becomes available. My co-host and golf course builder Jim Urbina and I spoke with Bill Coore and Gil Hance earlier this year, and we're happy now to have another member of the Big Four into the salon, David Kidd. David always brings a unique, artistic, and innovative perspective into his designs, and discussions about him with golf architecture are never dull. There's a lot of meat on the bone in this conversation and some hearty banter. Before we dive in, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to Feed the Ball through your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, please leave a rating and some remarks about the show. You can also contact me on Twitter and Instagram at Feed the Ball and at Derek underscore Duncan at Discovery.com as well. With that said, let's get straight into our talk with David McClay Kidd.
1: You know, Derek, in golf course architecture, I always look back to the past and I often have to judge whether what I'm doing, what other architects are doing is in harmony with what the golden age designers thought about. And one of the things that caught my attention was a a quote from Alistair McKenzie. And if you don't mind me, I'd like to read that to you.
0: Yeah, I'd like to hear that.
1: And I quote, Mr. Alistair McKenzie, how frequently has one seen hundreds of pounds wasted in a futile attempt to reproduce the Alps, the Himalayas, or the Cardinal? Features of this kind look absolutely out of place unless the surrounding ranges of hills which harmonize with them are also reproduced. To do this would involve the expenditure of hundreds of thousands of pounds. How often are attempts made to copy a whole and the subtle slopes and undulations which are making of the original overlooked? End quote. And what I mean, what catches my attention about that, Derek, is that it all goes back to Bill Coor listening to Rod Whitman about how you have to know what to look for. And sometimes when we're busy trying to. Recreate or draw inspiration from other golf courses, golden age designs that we have seen, we forget to see what's actually there. And some of the original contours sometimes are overlooked. And I struggle with that all the time because I always draw inspiration from the Lynxlands of Scotland and Ireland. I always draw inspiration from some of the best golf courses I've ever seen, walked and played. But sometimes as Alistair McKenzie said, it's all right there in front of you, an original, you shouldn't overlook it. And that's what I think about all the time in our discussions with Bill Coor, Gil hands, Bobby weed. When we asked Bobby weed about, you know, did he draw insp- I asked him if he drew inspiration from long cove and you know, he he, he did. He said, you know, I was looking at designing new holes with Pete Dye on my shoulder. And the quote caught me by surprise. And I thought, even Alistair McKenzie thought, why waste hundreds of pounds trying to recreate when sometimes the simplest landforms are all there waiting for you to make an original? I think that's really, really cool.
0: It is cool. Obviously, it always it goes without saying, you know, you a good sight you know helps that uh, a good sight is important if you're going to see what's in front of you and and play with it um you know bobby weed didn't have anything in front of him so he had to you know he had to dig into the earth and 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 mold it and move stuff around that's an interesting quote though and i i've been thinking about this a lot lately how how important is it jim for architects to have studied the masters and studied links land. Do you think is, is it possible for somebody to come into the business with, with no knowledge of the golden age designs, having never been to Scotland or Ireland, they've played golf wherever they've played golf. Is it possible for that person to come into the design business and be successful? Would they, would they be able to, maybe they would come at it with such a unique point of view, they did something that nobody had ever thought of before. Well,
1: I believe me. I think about that all the time was my, was my ability or the lack of ability of playing golf. What Pete was attracted to me for, because I, I, I didn't have any preconceived notions. Was I a better shaper for Pete because I didn't play golf. So I didn't study golf and, some of the things that we're building may have been so abstract that Pete liked it. And so maybe I did a disservice to go and study links golf. Maybe I did a disservice to myself to study the best golf courses of the golden age. I doubt it, but I wonder if all the preconceived notions that I think about have helped me or have not allowed me to see an original and build something like that. But I think you still have to understand the bones of a golf course to know what to look for, if that makes sense. But I can't argue with you that maybe that naivety, is that the right word? The the ability to not know Mm -hmm. would make you better at what you do. If you were given the right direction, that's a great question. One of, the best, one of the best shapers I've ever worked for was a man by the name of Tony Russell. He's the brother of Troy Russell, the former superintendent of Band of Dunes Resort. Tony Russell was a dairy farmer, and he doesn't play golf. I remember one day we went out and played golf, and I gave him a bag, and it was kind of torn, and the golf balls kept falling out. And he says, oh, "What kind of game is this? I spend my whole time picking up golf balls," and he really, he really didn't want to play. You know, he he thought it was kind. Of, he's not very good. He didn't want to play, but when you got him to create and shape features, he understood what what needed to be done engineering wise. Then that's regards to drainage and all the other things go with that mm-hmm. shaping. But he 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 had no inclination of playing golf, and maybe that's what makes him so good. Great question. Don't know the answer. I've never met a golf course designer that's a neophyte that hasn't seen something good in the Scotland uh, and Ireland's of the world and, and studied great architecture. Could it happen? Could I take somebody, give them a routing? And tell them to build whatever they want to build. You think that anybody would show up?
0: <laughs> I guess, and it's also—it's uh, not really to take it a step further. It's—it's it's not really about you know some uh, alleged uh, child genius or the idiot savant who just you know magically creates something out of nothing, and coming from nowhere. I, th- I think the the real trick is to incorporate all of your knowledge. To have studied the classics, to have read the literature, to have understood the concepts, to have gone over to the islands and played Lynx golf, to absorb all that, and then flush it, and then have it not be have that not be the peat die on your shoulder. Have that yeah. just be networked into your neurons somehow so that what you build is not not crazy but it's also not directly referential to other things. You know, you're not trying to, to build a golf course that looks like a Tillinghast course. You know, you're not uh, trying to do something that looks historical. I mean, I think that would be like the height of your profession. It's like a musician who has has studied the blues and has studied jazz and, and and studied rock and roll, but they harmonize all those things and fuse them together to come up with a, a sound that is uniquely theirs. And when you listen to that music, a you admire it but b you think it doesn't come from anywhere because you can't trace it directly but then if you really get into it and you break it down and and measure it and and analyze it if you want to do that it, you shouldn't have to do that to music but if you did you'd say oh well there's there's these influences that are kind of simmering in the background and that's where this comes from i think in golf yeah. architecture that is kind of like the highest ideal is to have all that knowledge and have those frames of references, but have it not be detectable almost.
1: And I like that that you had some frame of reference. I, I totally, I totally agree with that. You had to have some frame of reference. One of the golf courses I, I recently did a routing for, and, and hopefully I have my fingers crossed. I get to build. One of the challenges that that I'm going to try and do with this golf course. Is I'm going to approach it in the way I build it in a non-conforming way, and a couple of the of the shapers who I have in mind to help me with that are are going to be ones that some have worked with me before, and others uh, I'm trying to find that have never worked with me before, so that there's a breath of fresh air. Does that make sense? And and if the breath of fresh air, like the musician sitting in with the band, a musician that sits in with the band that's never played with them, maybe he'll bring or her will bring a freshness to the sound. And that's what I've been thinking uh, all along, that if this routing does uh, and this golf course does come to to, uh, unfold, that I'll bring some fresh people that I've never worked with. And I think that the synergy, the synergy of the construction will be as you say almost riffing and then it's up to me and the owner to make sure that it's in harmony that it that without without changing the sound make sure that it that it that it, it flows and, and and it's fresh and that's that's all you could ask for
0: speaking of freshness there's one architect working today that Attempts to bring as much freshness and and that, and that that those textures and and those those the the, the new angle the, the new perception who's always pushing for that. There's one guy who does that as much as anybody, and that's David kidd and we're going to be talking to him pretty soon. And I've always admired that about him. You know, he he burst onto the scene, Jim, in the late '90s, building the first course at Bandon Dunes. Nobody knew who he was. He'd come over from Scotland from Glen Eagles where he'd worked for his father, who was a very well-known greenkeeper at that at Glen Eagles, and, and he's hired by Mike Kaiser to build the Bannon course. It's a resounding success in part because of the location, but also in part because I don't think a Lynx course, a real authentic Lynx had been built in the United States in in who knows how many years. Uh, a real oceanside dunesy sandy links. He goes from there, and he gets a number of other jobs. Uh, he worked at, um, for an ultra-private high, ultra private client in Hawaii to build Nenea. Uh, he, he went around to build some other things. He kind of got on this track where he wanted to demonstrate something different maybe than Bandon's. Maybe I'm ascribing uh, motives that aren't there, but he definitely started to build different types of golf courses. Tetherow comes to mind in Oregon, and they were, they were very difficult. He got a great gig to build well, we say it's a great gig. I think a lot of people, anybody would have wanted the job, but it was a tough job. And that was the castle course in St. Andrews on a very, very difficult site um, with with almost no, no uh, natural assets to it. It was a potato farm. Uh, and there was some sort of like water recycling or sewage treatment plant on site that they had to work around. He built something pretty extreme there. And in, in this period in his career, Jim, he, he, he fielded a lot of Criticism, you know he he was very open about what he was trying to do. The criticism was fairly open, as open as it really, in my recollection, has been for anybody. And it, it forced him to kind of reanalyze what he was doing, and he realized that he'd gotten very far away from what he was what he had done at Band and Dunes, which was to create this very open, fun, expansive playing environment where people could just bunt their ball around and have fun and not get beat up. And that gave him sort of permission to reinvent himself in a way, artistically and as a designer. And he comes back and he gets a job at Gamble Sands on a tremendous, beautiful bluff top site overlooking the Columbia river, creates this big, wide bouncy golf course that is so fun to play. The driving angles on that course, Jim are are spectacular. It's one of the, greatest places to drive the ball in the country it's so much fun uh and, and he takes that principle and then he gets to reunite with mike kaiser brings that same type of principle that he calls defending birdie it's a riff on the old rtj you know hard part easy bogey this was hard birdie easy par for the average player and he did that at mammoth dunes in wisconsin at the sand valley resort so i've always appreciated the fact that he's been able to look inward He's driven himself. He drives himself artistically. He tries to do unique things and he's not afraid to change direction when called for.
1: And it's funny. I, when I think about when we talked about uh, getting David kid on as a guest, I thought to myself, what a genius Mike Kaiser was. He brings a Scotsman over to the U S to help him create links golf. Much in the same spirit that Bendelow. Ross, McKenzie, A.V. McCann, and many others who came from Scotland to bring the architecture to America. Mike Kaiser brings back a Scot, allows him to recreate abandoned dunes in the spirit of of Lynx golf. And now we have the new Scotsman of the new era. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to talking to him. About many of his golf courses that I've seen, uh, especially Nenea, which I think is by far my favorite so far of of his his golf courses, I'll be curious to see how he views it and the scotsman the new Scotsman of the new era uh what a treat I'm looking forward to it
0: yeah, I'm looking forward to it too, because in addition to just you know being an incredibly talented uh designer you know, one of the most prominent designers working right now, one of the guys who actually can command those great sites around the world. He's just a great guy to talk to because he's Frank. He addresses the issue. He doesn't give you, uh, you know, uh, corporate speak. You know, he's not he's not on message. He's David Kidd. You ask him a question, he's going to answer it. Uh, and he, I, th- I think he's just one of the most uh, honest or I should let me put it this way: He's one of the the people working now that's the most willing to be honest, and it's refreshing yeah. to talk to him and and hear that. And we're going to get some of that when we get into our talk. He's David being David. That's right. He's uh, <laughs> he tells it like it is. <laughs> I can hardly wait. <laughs> All right, let's go do it. Let's talk to David McClay Kid.
2: Look at your fish tank. Yeah, you like my fish tank, Jim? I'm
1: gonna go get a fish tank.
2: <laughs> there it is. There's the office. You know, I uh I just did a, a call with a guy and I was like, What the hell? Your office is awesome. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, it's my uh it's my penthouse suite in New York. And he <laughs> had me for a minute. And it was one of those fake backgrounds, but for a moment I was like, Holy shit, this guy's really in New York in his penthouse. <laughs> uh, they, these are real fish.
1: I'm impressed.
2: You like it? Do you, where are you, Jim? You're in your house too?
1: Yes, I have a I have an office in my house in the front part of the house, so yeah.
2: Uh, I, I'm in our office, which is in a little uh, northwest crossing in Bend, which is on the west side of town. If I look out this way, I'm looking at the mountains. How far uh, from
1: the Tetheral?
2: If I look over this way, we've got uh, – nick and and nick you can't see aj's over there on the drawing board right now Jeez, you got um, him working working keep him busy man slave driver, slave driver. <laughs> good for you yeah.
0: i was going to ask you since this thing's been going on what's the longest that you've been at home is this abnormal for you or are you still managing to get out
2: well, I'm, uh, I'm lucky enough to be a pilot, as Jim knows. Yeah. So we have our own small airplane. Okay. So I don't think I've spent more than a week in, at home, even through this. I found uh, places I could go, even if it meant that uh, we weren't, you know, in a room with anyone. But uh, Nick and I were uh, isolated together. Uh, so he was sat next to me in uh, our little plane. And we were making trips up and down the West coast to golf courses and, uh, looking at stuff and talking to people, you know, six feet apart. So we, we kept actually fairly busy. Are yeah. you even the
0: type of person that could have stayed home for like four weeks?
2: You know, I've been divorced twice and I don't want to be divorced a third time. So, so, uh, staying home for four weeks might have been it. That's well, I could have done it.
0: Not, not sure nobody, that's the key to a happy marriage is traveling. Nobody there. wants to hang
2: out with me for four weeks. Even I don't <laughs> want to hang out with me for four weeks. <laughs> I just had
1: a breakfast with him one morning. I freaking drove me nuts. <laughs> no, yeah,
2: 45 wow. minutes, done. Don't, don't you start teasing too hard, Arbina? I know way too many things about you.
1: <laughs> we shared Derek, we shared some breakfasts together.
2: You almost said therapy. That's not. True. <laughs> Never for therapy. That comes you later, later at night. Therapy. That's he was after ten. From me.
1: And I'm telling you what, we, we didn't have enough time in the morning, or we'd have kept going.
0: <laughs> well, Dave, that brings up an interesting point. I don't know where this breakfast happened, but you know, you've spent so much time at band and You were the first one there, and then you get to watch Jim Urbina show up along with others, but it, at two other times.
2: Uh, you I, was much, I was pretty much gone by then. There, but there wasn't much overlap. No overlap,
0: but I but you knew what was going on. You know, you oh, yeah, you yeah, paved yeah. the I, way, and then you see these these guys come in and and do what they did. Did you have any thoughts about? You probably thought I set the table for these guys, and then they come in.
2: Oh, I, I bloody well did. <laughs> There's no much doubt about it. No question. There's no question. Like see, he, he agrees.
1: No, I reckon, I'm not going to argue with the Scots. <laughs> the Scots. Yeah,
2: yeah. If I'd have screwed it up, there would have been no Jim Urbina uh, at Pacific or Old McDonald. They would have all stopped. I'd have would have had the train wreck and the game would have been up. So, uh, you know, I I did a a thing with Golf Week many many years ago uh, with Tom Doak and I, and uh, it was a Raiders visit at Bandon Dunes. I don't think you were there, Jim, but at the end of you know Tom did his talk and it was very in depth and you know, very intellectual and and I did mine and it was more like, you know, Jimmy Kimmel stand-up or at least I think it is. (laughs) Uh, And at the end of it all, uh, they had an open question thing. So they asked uh, both of us together, we've got one mic between us we're sharing and they asked uh, both of us, if you could have your time at Band and Dunes over again, what would you do differently? And so Tom has the mic and he thinks for a minute, and he explains this very in depth uh, thing that he's been thinking about. And I, I even today, I can't quite remember. It was probably super intellectual and completely over my head. Uh, <laughs> and then he handed me the, the mic, and I said, I'd have gone second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I do different. It's a, you know, I, I, I had to, to f- claw and fight my way through negativity for four or five years that everybody except Mike Kaiser uh, thought that it was doomed to failure. In fact, I'm not sure even Mike was completely convinced, but everybody else was absolutely convinced that a golf course in rural Oregon on the southern Oregon coast, that the weather's not great and you won't allow people to drive in a cart and you make them walk and there's not a flat lie out there and you use grasses from the 1800s Uh, and greens that will roll at their best at nine, who in the hell is going to come? And then you hire a 26-year-old son of a greenkeeper who's never done anything. I mean, this is doomed for failure. So I was constantly fighting, pushing back on all these preconceptions of what golf is. Uh, And of course, it seems so obvious today, but then it was not obvious. I'm sure Jim would agree it was not obvious. And so... By the time Tom arrived with Jim, all those boundaries were already broken. The the dam had bust a little bit, and they didn't have to fight like that. You know, I, I was fighting about really s- simple stuff like, well, how are we going to uh, mow the grass on these bunker faces? I mean, we want to ride on, mow everything. Well, that's not the kind of bunker you build on a Lynx course. I mean, it, it's not a Parkland golf course, and that was one of a 1,000 fights I had. Uh, trying to explain that, and then Tom and Jim turn up and they leave the marum grass growing right in the bunker faces. <laughs> yeah. I, I think they'd have truly hung me if I'd have tried that. Uh, so you're right,
1: absolutely, Derek. He's absolutely right. Uh, a, a lot of the the doors that he knocked down in order for us to be successful uh, were were obviously uh, pains for David in those first couple years in construction and growing, and and I don't mean to say it simply, Derek, because I don't mean it in any way. We had our own struggles, but we could we could point to the south. Uh, Pacific Dunes is to the north of, of Bandon. We could point to the south and say to anybody who questioned what we were about to do, well, David did that, and David did this, and David did that, and if, if he could do that, why can't we do what we were proposing so if we would have been the first on the block uh, including the crew the construction crew including the maintenance crew uh everything would have been uh, much more difficult for us uh we thank david with all our with all <laughs> our possible uh can't pay you anything david sorry
2: <laughs> don't worry jim i i i got paid well enough in the in the years <laughs> after that it's okay
1: But I'm I'm telling you, it made it so much simpler. But I don't know if David remembers this. We did have dinner just before we started at Pacific Dunes. We had dinner with a construction man, Tony Russell, the famous Tony Russell, at a restaurant in downtown Bandon. And we all kind of toasted and celebrated. Mike Kaiser was invited, but he declined. So it was David, Tony Russell, myself, uh, was Jim Haley there, David? I'm
2: sure he had to have been.
1: Jim Haley and, and Tom. He and I
2: were uh, joined at the hip for a <laughs> few right. years there.
1: And I don't know why Tony Russell was there. I think he was looking for work. But we all kind of had Probably
2: Troy a- Russell was there too.
1: That's right, Troy Russell. So, Derek, we kind of had this this um, meeting of, 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 the, of the two golf courses groups. And uh, we wished each other well and we went on our way. And uh, David's right. He didn't hardly come back during the whole process of Pacific Dunes. Uh, his banded Dunes had been built. People were loving it. People were writing about it. So you know, he was he was off to do the next couple of projects uh, from uh, his success at Bandit.
2: Well, uh, and the, the absolute truth of it is, you know, back then uh, I made forty thousand bucks building banded Dunes. I didn't have the money to buy an airfare from the U.K. to Bandon Dunes unless Mike Kaiser bought it for me. So unless there was an invitation, I was not coming back to Bandon Dunes. Uh, So that was probably the reason more than any other. I probably would have been happy to come back, but uh, Mike had no reason for me to be there. And I didn't have the wherewithal to buy my own ticket. And I was a British citizen at that point. Uh, I'm now an American citizen as well, but back then I, I wasn't. So I was coming in and out uh, on a business visa uh, that lasted 90 days, I think. So uh, the, 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 the nuance of the story is always interesting. Uh, you know, the, the overlap, I'm often asked, what was it like when you were building this and Bill Coor was doing that or I was building this and Gil Hans was doing that? There, there's, at least to my experience, there's less overlap than people think. They they think that there's all this sort of kumbaya and the, <laughs> the, that everyone's together and uh, no. I, I haven't found that to be overly true. There, there's no. uh, at, at best there's a healthy respect and a healthy rivalry, uh, and at worst, you know, the, there's a desire to uh, make sure you're the best.
1: And Derek, don't be fooled. There is a rivalry. Uh, your job is to is to believe and, and tell the owner that you're going to you're going to do better, better than the last, uh, better than the last golf course he visited, better than anything he's ever seen. Uh, you know, we're always trying to do better. Uh, and uh, I, I and in the case of David and I, uh, we will always have the rivalry to to do something different, uh, to outthink uh, David and, and some of the things I think about. I'm sure David feels the same way about others that he has worked with. Sand Valley, uh, you name it, wherever David has gone. Always t- trying to have that little bit of a rivalry.
0: David, I think that's really what I was kind of going for, was sort of that metaphorical watching them come over after you. And what, we, yeah. what are your feelings? Um, uh, you know, Bannon Dunes was a huge success. Pacific Dunes, arguably even a greater success. Uh, Old Mac was this really kind of cool, experimental model that had never been done before in the modern age. I'm, w- I'm wondering like what, when you see this place that you have such a connection to that you helped get it off the ground, you launch it and then these other guys come in on, on this property that you'd help develop and you see them get to do it. You must've really wanted another bite at that band in Apple.
2: Oh, hell yes. And I, and I did try. I mean, I, I tried to, to get that. Uh, but Mike, uh, Stayed true to his vision of of bringing different talent in, and twisting the uh, the story. You know, whether it, even though uh, Jim and Tom worked on Old MacDonald, you know, the the mantra was different. The, the client's brief, I guess, changed so that they got something very different out of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always wanted to to get another bite at that apple. Uh, I looked at what jim and tom did at pacific and i marveled at it i mean i i thought it was you know they they took what the basis of of what i had proven to work uh and they that they were able to go so much further than i was able to do and would i have gone that far even if i could i'm not sure maybe i couldn't have done Maybe, maybe they saw things i didn't see uh you know as the son of a greenkeeper uh, I had a very polished view of what golf was. Uh, I saw golf in the model of of the Scottish Lynx courses that I'd grown up on uh, and Tom was probably more influenced by this more rugged Irish Lynx look that's less manicured and more naturalistic uh, and that shows through to me in what he did at Pacific. Uh, you know I, I waited 20 odd years to get to build another 18hole course for for Mike Kaiser, uh, but it was probably worth the wait because I got to build a mammoth dunes and and I got to go second.
0: Second, (laughs) it's really,
2: really valuable. You know, I got to see everything that Bill and Ben had done and see everything that worked and everything that didn't work so well. And I had the entire construction crew that had been working on his course now at my disposal. I mean, it was like the difference between building an army or inheriting one. Uh, And when you inherit one, you can win wars. I'm sure uh, the accommodations
0: were a little better at night too.
2: You know, Bill likes to tease that he's always first to get somewhere and there's nowhere nice to stay. And I don't know why he does that because we've all been there. You know, we all get to be the pioneer at some point in your life where you're working on a project with nothing around it. Uh, I've done plenty of projects where there was nothing. Uh, you know, I was asked just recently, uh, I did a uh, an interview myself and Josh Lesnick uh, talking about the genesis of band and dunes. And Matt Janella asked me what my average day looked like. Uh, and there was nothing out there. There was not, there wasn't even a road. So I, I would literally get up in the morning, go to the site with the guys, get everything going. And then I'd drive back to town and get coffee and, and you know, s- sandwiches bring them back for breakfast. Then I'd grab Jim Haley's laundry and my laundry and go to the laundrette and do laundry because there was no way of getting that done. And these were all the practicalities of life, living in a very remote place that didn't even have a road, much less a toilet uh, on site. Uh, But I was in my 20s. It's a pioneer spirit. And we
0: were just talking with Jim and I were just talking with Bruce Heppner recently, and they were talking about how much fun they had at Pacific Dunes, you know, at night, the things that they were doing, because it was already established, you know, they had a a, a pub to go to and, and good food yeah. and good lodging.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to have that other times, but not then. That was uh, that was pioneering for sure. <laughs> Four hour drive from Portland uh, and only one air carrier that got you down to North Bend, And I was coming from London or Scotland. So it was a 24 hour trip. And yet when you talk
0: about uh, the, the the things that th- those stories and the things that you maybe couldn't have done that you would have wanted to do, or especially in retrospect, the things that you would do now, if you could have another run at it, when you take a poll of anybody who goes to Bandon and you ask them what's their breakdown or favorite courses, the original course does just as well as, as any other amongst the golfing populace is It's like 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%, almost across the board. At least that's my experience talking to people. And I've met so many people that say the original course is their favorite.
2: You know, it brings up a really interesting point, you know, in the world of golf design, you know, just like any other uh, entertainment, art form, whatever, you know, where does success lie? Does it lie in critical acclaim or does it lie in commercial success? Uh, if you if you lay it on critical acclaim, then the rankings would prove out to be Pacific Dunes is ahead of all the other courses. If you rank it based on uh, the number of rounds that are played, uh, Bandon Dunes beats Pacific Dunes, not by much, but every year by a little. Uh, and The other courses fall away precipitously from Bannon and Pacific uh, trails and old McDonald's do do significantly less rounds than the first two. So where, where does that lie? That's a, a, something I dwell on more these days than ever before is where is the route to my own personal success? Does where do you come out on that? Well, I, I I've been lucky enough to, I feel lucky enough to have done both. I feel lucky enough that there are many courses in my portfolio I could point at and say that was best new or that was in a ranking. And yet the public's reaction to them wasn't near what I had hoped. And I've built other courses that aren't in any rankings and yet the people that play them because of their location often or because of their model, they're highly private. Uh, People absolutely adore them. And you think, you know, where is that balance? You know, where where does that sit? Uh, it can't be all one. It can't be all the other. I, I'm still, uh, I, I realize now that critical acclaim alone, uh, it isn't what makes me happy. I, I don't believe it should be what makes a golf course designer happy. We are not artists in the pure sense of the word. We're more like architects where uh, what we produce needs to have form and function we're delivering entertainment uh and if we fail in that then don't we fail on everything
0: do you think projecting 50 years into the future there's a course out there right now that maybe isn't popular with the public or that critics if there are such a thing in the future will come back and have a greater appreciation like an old film that didn't yeah. do well at the box office and critics discovered another generation and, and they say what a what a masterpiece or what a jewel this is look at all there is
2: to well, for, suck from for, that for me it's obvious which one that would be uh if you know my career well enough you would you'd go right to it it's the castle course yeah. of st andrews uh, you know my team and i poured our absolute hearts and soul into a 220 acre potato field uh that had absolutely nothing to it uh and in the three or four years it took to get all of the permits together, I often went to my father, who's a, my hero, and I would say, I see no way of winning this. The townsfolk of St. Andrews are hard to please, as are the golfers of Scotland, as are, as are the critics of the world. And here I am with a very poor sight at the home of golf. It doesn't seem that there's any way I could please everyone. And he said, you've answered your own question. <laughs> Don't try. Just please right. yourself. Yep. Go out there with your team and build what you believe you could lay on your deathbed and feel like you gave it your all. And that's exactly what we did. And the initial reaction from the critics was pretty scathing. Uh, and that was hard to bear. That, that didn't feel great. Uh, and yet, last summer, when I spoke to the Lynx Trust, they told me that on an annualized basis, their second most popular golf course is the Castle course, behind the Old course. It does 25,000 rounds a year, and it's only open for five months.
1: And Derek, uh, Derek will attest to this, uh, David. We talked to Gil about critics and, and, and what they said about some of the golf courses he did, uh, Rio and Streamsong. And he said, if, if I had a chance to explain what happened, why I did these things, but you never get a chance to explain it. You're, you're just, you put it out there. At least not
0: until it's too late.
1: (laughs) You put it out there and here they come. It doesn't
2: matter. There's there. I, I say this often to my small team. Don't give me excuses. I don't care. I don't care any more than the golfer who paid his money and gave of his time. It doesn't matter. Don't tell me that you couldn't build a better hole because the client didn't have enough money or the permitting didn't allow you to do A, B, or C. The golfer doesn't care. They just know if they enjoyed the experience or not. And so I try and remind myself of that often, that no one cares. All they care about is the experience. If if, If the three of us go see a movie together and we don't like it, we don't want to hear from the director. I didn't like your movie, dude.
0: That's right. You, you never get a chance to find out and you don't care. You walk away.
2: I don't care. I'm out of here.
0: You don't want to stand at
1: the, at the uh, 18th green and say, come on, man, give me a break.
2: Yeah. Let me play it. Let me play this golf course. You hate one more time with you and I'll prove to you that you'd love it. Uh, tell you I what, think,
0: I'll tell you what you're missing. Come on, come with me.
2: Yeah, I, I think that we fail. If, if that's what it is, then we probably have failed, yeah, do you uh, think?
0: That's fair. Do you think that the general public is swayed by early reaction to a golf course? Golf course architecture doesn't have the equivalent of a movie critic or a restaurant critic. The the del- it, there's very few. i
2: talking to one right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, trust me, I have I have very very <laughs> little influence on anything, even in my own house, but. You know, a movie you can see where a bad review could sink it, or, or a restaurant, a bad review could sink it. I'm not sure that that's the equivalent in golf because if you can get people to the golf course, there are a lot of people that are going. You're going to have a split decision at the at the. I, I don't.
2: I don't believe you, Derek. I'm gonna. Or I'm gonna, you're gonna. I'm gonna say that's not true. Uh, I, I would say here's one. Should I even say it out loud? Yes, you know I'm gonna because I can't help myself. <laughs> so opening day stream song. I was there on opening day, and uh, the mining company had invited everybody with any influence in the golf world. Every single critic in the golf world was there. I don't know. Were you there, Jim? Were you involved in that? Or were you? Oh, uh, I had moved on to okay, my, my on. new life. <laughs> so eh, everybody but everybody is there except Jim. Uh, <laughs> <That's> and, <nice. laughs> and everybody gets to play Both courses. And Mike Kaiser, quite vocally, says that he doesn't like Tom's course, doesn't like the greens, doesn't like the course. And in my humble opinion, his opinion went through there like wildfire. I mean, it got picked up by one person after another, took that opinion and repeated it and repeated it. I think, was he right? I don't know. I think it's a a very... Uh, individual taste i've gone back to stream song many times i've played both courses i couldn't tell you that one is significantly better or significantly worse than the other i, I played them both i'd play them both today tomorrow next yeah, week i it's, thought they were great so so there is that I, i'll i'll i would throw that to you as one data point that you know that happened did it have an effect on the commercial success though I don't know, maybe not, but it's. I think it certainly influenced through the critics. The, the, you know, first wave
0: of raiders. It, it, might have affected why Red came out slightly ahead. Over time, those differences seem to diminish. So, so, and, and, and I, I think also, over time, that people go to the castle course, they'll long forget the stories or the difficulty oh, or whatever. They'll see it and they'll they'll just enjoy it. They'll take it for as it is.
2: Yeah, and uh, and to 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 circle back to the castle course, you know, the 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 logic I gave it was if I pushed too hard, uh, it could always be dialed back. You can turn the volume down on a on a design, but you can't turn it up. So if I built something that was a uh, benign, you know, gilded uh, Craighead, the the course at Crail, with a very very limited budget on a oh, similarly right. poor piece of ground. That's right. Uh, and that golf course got no critical acclaim because it got no attention whatsoever. No one cared.
0: <laughs> Which is worse uh, than being panned.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That, that is the worst of all is you don't, you don't even get slated. You get ignored. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, David, don't take this personal, but I, I love Nanea, and I just, I, I love it. As much as anything you've done, better than Bandon, better than the other college courses you've seen, would you say that Nanea doesn't get its due?
2: Uh, well, Nanea is a very interesting point. Nanea is a course on the Big Island of Hawaii that I got the opportunity to build for Charles Schwab and George Roberts about well fifteen years ago. So maybe five or six years after I did Bandon they have a very private membership and they uh, shun all publicity. So uh, does it not get its due? Maybe not, but it's not because uh, people don't want to get in there. You know, I I often get calls from uh, people in the the media asking if I can get them on that golf course, uh, and I'm not able to. I I can't even ask uh, because the club don't want any publicity whatsoever. Hi. Uh, so uh, I, I think from our point of view, Jim, when you're building a public golf course that gets a lot of attention, those are the things that allow someone in our business to rise above everybody else. Yeah, it, that's it's, true. It, it's not necessarily that they are massively more talented than the next person but if you build a public golf course that's incredibly popular like Bandon Dunes or like Mammoth Dunes or even like the Castle Course uh, it gives you a a level of public recognition that you won't get if the, your bread and butter is private golf courses that no one gets to see and the magazines don't talk about
1: and Derek but, the 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 holes at Nadair you're one right after the other they're just – they're stunning. The views are beautiful. They're fun to play. And I'm thinking, how come he's not doing more of these? Well, because it's it's for a few people, and I was lucky to get to play it. So, uh, to me, there's a value in that because you had to have some self-satisfaction with the outcome of Nenea.
2: Sure. But, it, you know, if if on balance, if if this whole thing was a, an accounting spreadsheet, you know, do I get more pleasure out of 40,000 plus people playing uh, band and dunes or 5,000 people playing the name? That's easy, you know? Yeah. 40,000 people playing band and dunes is our kick. It's been open for 20 years. That's a that's pushing a million people. Uh, the, the courses that, that have that many people going through them, especially when they're just, you know, an average guy who's who's getting to play something that's world class. I mean, Bandon Dunes could easily be, you know, the the Cypress Point or the Pine Valley of the West Coast if Mike had wanted it to be so. Uh and it would be him and a few of his friends. Fair. Uh, that's fair. Doesn't mean that we wouldn't have still built exactly the same golf course, but no one would know who we were who we are, and not those tens of thousands of people wouldn't have had the pleasure of enjoying the southwestern Oregon coastline.
0: David, you're one of the the lucky ones, I, I, I call it, that is really in the running for great projects, great properties, even uh, places like the the course you're working on in Utah now where you get a chance to like take it down to the studs and, and rebuild it. I, as far as I know, you really don't do a lot of master plans, a lot of restoration um pure renovation work it's more kind of being creative and being able to build what you want to build on a site you you've been fortunate to be able to establish yourself to the point where clients trust you to do that is that by choice not to yeah. get into the historical kind of side of it
2: yeah that's that's per, yeah i would say that that's by choice it doesn't mean that i wouldn't do it but there are others out there that specialize in it far more like jim like Gil Hans. Uh, the the new uh, projects, greenfield projects that right. we're doing from, from nothing uh, re- require a lot more effort, uh, take a lot more time, uh, and for me are a lot more rewarding than a historical audit and renovation back to something. Uh, even the projects that we're doing that are effectively remodels, uh, I have two or three simple questions i ask myself before we take these projects on the number one thing is uh does this site uh have further potential in it uh, is the golf course that sits here today uh worthy of the site that it sits within uh and if you look at the project you're you're mentioning in southern utah it's in an, an absolutely phenomenal site i mean the, the surroundings are breathtaking but the golf course that's there is is somewhat underwhelming uh, and I think the site is is deserving of something more uh suited to to the landscape it sits within uh, and, and so that's the number one most most important question uh, and then the next question is you know who who is my client is, is this client going to allow us to, to take the potential and actually achieve it uh, and sometimes they're not they they want to tweak at the edges and They've got very specific ideas of what they want. So for me, the perfect uh, uh, brownfield project is one where there's potential that can be gained and a, a partner, a client that wants us to maximize it. And those are almost as much fun as a completely greenfield build. They're certainly a lot faster because you already have all the infrastructure, you have all the permitting, the costs are so much less. So that that stuff is really interesting. The historical remodels, I really haven't done very much of it at all. Uh, and you know, maybe it's maybe I will in the future. Maybe I won't. Uh, if I can keep building new, new works uh, or something like it, I, I think I'd be happy.
0: I'm sure the, the people is- that do specialize in that are glad you've taken that that path for now. <laughs>
1: yeah, butt out, David. Butt out, would you? <laughs>
2: it's all yours, baby.
1: <laughs> but you know what, David. We got, in, we got in a, uh, we didn't get in a, a too deep of an argument, but we, uh, we discussed template holes. And you, you were like asking, why would you want to copy what something had already been done? And I said, well, we all draw inspiration from the Redans of the world, the Shorts of the world, the Alps. These are all template holes that I'm talking about, Derek. And David is looking at me like, why would you want to copy those? Why wouldn't you? you just want to do your own stuff? And I do want to do my own stuff, but I always draw inspiration from them. And David and I went around and around and around, and I know he's just dying to come through that screen at me <laughs> right
2: now. No, no I, I, I think that there is, especially if you're renovating a golf course that has those, then of course you're going to uh, take those templates and you're going to Uh, bring that golf course back to what they originally were, or you're going to tune them up even better than they originally were on the basis of those templates. Uh, Where I, where you and I debated is when you have a good site and then you apply a template, are you not missing an opportunity? Is there not the chance that something else could have come uh, that you could have dreamt up your own template uh, because none of those templates were handed down by God to Moses, you know. Somebody dreamt them up. So, you know, I, I would love to think that I'm, I'm building templates all the time. I'm just the first one to build them.
1: And he's, he, he's he's right about that. He's creating his own style. But I was mentioning to David, I thought, you know, David, is really a good punch bowl green right here. <laughs> and that's how we got started Why a punch bowl? I mean, but I have to ask you, David, did Glen Eagles have any inspiration for you when you laid out Band of Dunes?
2: It it did in terms of, you know, James Braid, who did Glen Eagles, it was probably his finest work when he did the Kings and Queens course at Glen Eagles. Uh, He laid down some simple markers that are as valid today even with our equipment as they were 100 years ago when he did it and this guy won the british open five times and everyone wants to ask me who's your favorite golden age architect and i say james braid and they say who Uh, and of course he predated (laughs) all those guys you know his work his career was effectively over over by uh, yeah yeah, he he was pre-golden age (laughs) ice age maybe Uh, but you look at the King's Course at Glen Eagles, and what do you see? And you see these big greens and really wide fairways and strategic bunkering, and it's fairly simple. You know, there's nothing contrived about it. There's there's nothing. You know, it's it's not uh, chess off the tee. Uh, it's it's quite it's somewhere between checkers and chess. Uh, you can stand in every tee, and you can kind of see what you're what you're looking at. Uh, And I definitely took that from Glen Eagles because it's a much-loved resort course. The average guest who maybe does or doesn't play golf, uh, Nick's making as much noise as he can back here for me. Sorry.
0: He wants to get on Uh, camera.
2: Yeah, Yeah, he's crashing around. (laughs) Uh, You know, the – Width of the fairways, the size of the greens, it's very windy in that part of Scotland. It's the, one of the higher golf courses It sits at 800 feet up, which is quite high, believe it or not. And so the wind scours the sand out of the bunkers. So in order to prevent that at Bandon Dunes, I kind of copied the style of bunkers at Glen Eagles. And when I watched you shape the bunkers at Pacific, I could tell I knew you know, these guys are not maybe appreciating what's going to happen when a dozen winters hit this place and their Cypress Point bunkers with wiggly edges and fingers. You know, I, I challenge you to point at one of those today, you know, 15 years later, they're gone. Uh, the, the bunkers are hollowed out egg shapes uh, because the wind is, is the way it is. So there's a practicality, I guess, that as the son of a greenkeeper – And my father was at Glen Eagles for 25 years. I should mention that. That's where Jim is getting that connection. I spent much of my childhood there. Uh, So so Braid was a smart guy. He, He knew how to build a golf course that the public enjoyed playing, whatever their level of ability. And he knew how to build one that could be maintained at reasonable expense. Something we seem to have lost over the last 30 years. There are more golf courses we could point at than not that cost a fortune to build are unplayable by the average golfer and are unsustainable financially, both in terms of their revenue and their operating cost.
1: And Derek, when I look at the 10th hole at Bandon dunes, I think of the, of Glen Eagles uh, through and through. It just, it just hits me uh, with such simplicity of, of that fronting mound that you're playing around Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, that tenth hole is just like Glen Eagles.
2: Yeah, just like Glen Eagles. It could easily uh, be the third hole at Glen Eagles, which has a much bigger mound in front of it.
1: No, no doubt. I've seen them. I've <laughs> seen. Them, I've seen them both. But you know, Derek David talks about the cost to do business, the cost to maintain. His father Jimmy Kidd, very nice man, has always treated me with all due respect. I, I love the man for for what he stands for at Glen Eagles. The cost to do. Construction, the cost to main the, maintain the golf course, and 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 you know, David did the revetted bunkers at Bandon. They they weathered the storm and, and 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 the rains and the winds. Seemed pretty simple to me.
0: Yeah. So part of I think what you might be getting at, David, is and look if, if you spend any time around Jim Urbina, you know that his passion for The pioneers of of your field is, I mean, if you cut him open, Harry Colt would come out of his veins. So would would C.B. McDonald. I mean, he has got such a passion for it, and he's been in this business for a long, long time doing work on old courses. But I think what you're getting at is, and maybe I'm wrong, but let me put it this way. This is maybe what I'm getting at, is there is maybe a revivalism of Golden Age architecture amongst younger people or, or certain designers who are kind of catching this fever. And it always strikes me like it strikes you as a missed opportunity when I see somebody with the chance to build a new hole, not a not a restoration, but a new hole, and they want to build a, a Rainer knockoff, you know, something they just kind of want to, they want to try to do a Redan or they want to try to do a double plateau or they want to, they want to do the Lion's Mouth green. I feel like you and I have had this conversation before about artistry. I feel like that's a missed opportunity to explore your own inner artistry and your creativity and find out who you are as an individual designer when you choose to look to the past instead of inward.
2: Well said. I I don't think I could add anything to that. You've got it now. (laughs) That's exactly what what I'm saying. I, I, I think that, Jim and I, when we had this conversation at a breakfast spot in uh, Central California, we were probably at opposite ends, uh, not communicating well because he's looking at uh, older golf courses a lot of the time and I'm looking at greenfield sites a lot of the time. And so for me, uh, I, I would feel if I took a site like Mammoth Dunes at Sand Valley and I were to apply 18 templates to it, what credit could I really take? You know, wouldn't half the credit sit with the templates and the other half of that credit sit with me? I didn't build a single hole at a Mammoth Dunes purposely as a template. In fact, a quick story I'll tell you is Andy Johnson, the fried egg guy, posted on uh, Twitter a year or so after we finished Mammoth Dunes that the leave-in hole, the leave-in template uh, was one of his favourites. Uh, and he posted something about what the leaving hole looks like. It's been years since I've played leaving links. And I looked at the template and I thought, oh yeah, that's the second hole at Mammoth Dunes. So I got in touch and I said, that's the second hole at Mammoth Dunes. He said, oh yeah, yeah, that is a leaving hole. I had absolutely not the slightest thought in my head about building a leaving hole when I built that hole. That's just what that piece of land inspired me to create. It had nothing to do with me Thinking through a battery of templates and applying one, it just so happened that the basic formula of a leave-in hole happens to coincide with that particular hole in a loose way. Sure. And, and I guess there's another conversation there that they, these template holes are they really a hole or are they uh, a loose a contrivance uh, or not contrivance uh, a rhythm you know to a hole. The, the foundation, if you will, and then after that, you're headed in some often completely different direction. You know, I, I just I just did a, a short course. I just literally grassing it out today, and I tried my hardest to think up 14 template holes. And my challenge to me and my, my little crew was, let's build 14 template holes, but they have to be one-offs. Nobody can have built them before hmm (laughs) so they they have to be fundamentally like you could replicate it there's obviously a way that you could take this idea and replicate it on different sites but you're not allowed to build the lion's mouth you have to come up with other ways other simple things so to give you an idea uh we built a horseshoe green at mammoth dunes a complete horseshoe like this you can hit the drive to one side or roll all the way around And I said, you know, I loved that idea. It was so cool. But that won't work on a par three because the ball isn't coming in at a low enough trajectory to actually make the loop, right? Because it's coming in with an eight iron, nine iron wedge. So we said, okay, let's turn it into a corkscrew. And we'll take the horseshoe. We'll actually lift one side of it and race track it downhill, but in a horseshoe. Now, if there's another hole like that, I sure as hell don't know about it. But could that be a template? course it could
0: yeah
2: yeah now you just put that out
0: there now you just put that out into the atmosphere
2: well we built it it's grass so anybody that wants to copy it go right well you
0: got there first but jim what you did at uh, i'm curious to get david's thoughts on um what you did at old mcdonald i mean that was obviously inspired by template holes that was the theme but if you if if you didn't if there wasn't a guidebook that told you what most of those holes were a lot of people wouldn't probably most people wouldn't know there's a few a few that they could pick up on for sure but it was really taking an inspiration and then applying it to a natural site so um that was seems like maybe an appropriate i wouldn't want to see it done all the time but it works there it's it's magnificent there that's a that's one way you could take a template whole concept and not make it look like you're just you know copying other somebody else's ideas
1: well, for example, the short at Old MacDonald, the only thing when uh, Tony Russell and I uh, built that hole, the only thing that resembles short is the yardage, 155, 145. And it, it, does, it, it has three distinct pinning locations, left, center, and right, which uh, Charles Blair MacDonald always talks about in the short. But after that, it was total creativity. How could you get the ball from point A to point B to point C? And so loosely based on short, because it was 145, 155 in yardage, three distinct pinning locations, but it looks nothing like any of the McDonald and Raynor short holes that that they produced. So, yes, we were allowed to have creativity. Mike Kaiser, first thing he asked me and Ken Nice in the walk-around, how big is this green? I don't know, uh, Mike, it kind of fits the – fits the setting, got the Pacific ocean in the background. It, it fits the scale while well, we end up having 18,000 square feet of entertainment fun. So drew inspiration, didn't copy it exactly, nor did we want to. So I didn't mind doing that. It, it was, it, it was fun to play. Uh, David, I don't know the last time you played uh, old Mac, uh, did you say to yourself, Oh, this is the short at, you know, whatever.
2: You know, it's funny you asked that. The last time I played Old McDonald, which wasn't that terribly long ago, within the last six months, uh, I purposely looked at the card and looked at the, the names on the back so that I could figure out which uh, template was being attempted. Uh, and some of them are pretty close. I mean, you can look at uh, the road hole and you're like, okay, I get that. I mean, there's bunkers on the inside and the greens – you know, hard lifted and on a diagonal. But the cape hole, and I can't remember which holes these are. Number nine. Uh, it, you know, it, it, I would not have had any clue. You could have given me a week and I wouldn't have pegged that. But I would like to add, though, that the reason that Old McDonald surely ended up as the template golf course was uh, primarily because it was a weak piece of land in comparison to the rest of the pieces of land compared to the other three courses that were there at that time most of old mcdonald's land was relatively flat on the backside of a big dune and then two as the fourth course uh, and on the heels of three out-of-the-box successes you know mike could be a little more uh, i don't want to say risky but he could certainly you know he he could meander a little more than he would have done if that had been the first course maybe no it wouldn't work so well no chance. <laughs> so I, I I think particularly because it wasn't the greatest piece of land, it was genius that whoever it was came up with that idea. Mike Geyser, uh, and
1: it, was, and it was well executed. Yeah, and Derek, the only green that's at grade that was natural was number nine, the Cape. Nine green was the only green built at grade. Everything else was built up, created in the spirit of mcdonald and rayner so contrary to pacific dunes where every green was on grade at pacific dunes within inches old mac was the was the contrary but that's what mike wanted he wanted something different and david is absolutely correct we could not have built old mac first it wouldn't have flown no chance
2: it, it's an interesting to get really down in the weeds guys and uh, and you two are the one, the right two to talk about it. You know, when you talk about these old American designers or the guys that made their mark in architecture, whether it's Rainer or McDonald, you know, they were working on the East coast and they were working with generally heavy soils. Uh, and they learned from the green keepers of Scotland that in order to drain uh, they needed to lift things up in the air, especially the greens and then the teas and then drain bunkers. And so you've got this elevation uh, that existed through their architecture that can be applied or you see applied post-Second World War and sometimes into sites that didn't require it. So, you know, I, look, I looked at a magazine that came in today. I don't want to mention any names. And it was a pure sand site, and I'm looking at elevated greens, uh, and I think, you know, what? Why does why do all these greens have to be elevated? Once you're working in sand, and another truth, I mean, Old McDonald isn't sand. I mean, that that part of the site is no longer in sand, right, Tim?
1: Well, it's it's it was some difficult land. Uh, yeah. If you were if you were to ask me what piece of property would you want to go back and do another one on Pacific Dunes ten times over. Like ten times over, because the sand was just there. It was perfect. It was beautiful, but the uh, the fourth course, Old MacDonald, which much was much more of a challenge, as David Kidd knows, and 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 so that's where the perch greens up in the air, the raised elevations. He's spot on with the with the observations of draining water off these plateaus. Spot on. Spot on.
0: David, are you saying I'm interested in your post-war comment about? the architects are still raising up greens
2: even when they don't have to
0: do you think that was that an artistic or or a a reaction to the way the game was being played um a stylistic shift not obviously they they had more technology at their disposal i mean they had better drainage and better irrigation than they had in the 1920s so they could they could do it and still drain it so i wonder if you think that was a, a choice that they were making to do that the dick wilson popping these greens up and fronting them with bunkers, RTJ, and everybody else? Who copied those two guys?
2: I think there's a whole plethora of factors come into play. Uh, Irrigation arrives, creeping bent grass arrives, high trajectory, clubs, balls with backspin. All of these things uh, lead toward target golf, which uh, is at its best when the target, if you miss it, rejects you violently, which pushing a green up in the air is always going to do. Uh, And here we are in the next century and golfers haven't really gotten that much better Uh, and they aren't able to hit a ball with that much backspin unless it's a sand wedge. And when they miss those targets, they get rejected and their opportunity to recover uh, is slim. And so at Sand Valley at Mammoth Junes, we worked really hard to try not to elevate greens we tried really hard to build at grade or even below grade uh, so that that rejection factor was minima, minimalized or even gone completely. Uh, the contours started to help you if you missed. Uh, it doesn't help you make birdie, but it sure helps you make you know, less than triples. That's and true. The it- miss
1: is, and the miss isn't so penalized. Uh, he's absolutely right. The miss isn't so penalized. Wait till you see uh, Wingfoot on TV and in the, in the U.S. Open. Those greens are just up there and and falling off on all sides, and so that was the golden age. That was tilling Hass. that was him perching it up in the air, getting water off of them. And one of the reasons I like Lynx golf is everything is on the ground, uh, rolling up to them. Uh, so uh, I do I do appreciate uh, David's observation of why are we still doing that?
0: Do you? I'll ask both of you this: Do you think that that is that adds to the admiration for golden age architecture is because a lot of these sites that you're talking about when you push things up like that and then you're cutting bunkers in or you're taking material what's going to be used where a bunker is and then you're you're piling it in the back so you can create these dramatic slopes these shadows the architecture looks dramatic when you have a more crude way of building it so you have a you have something that like looks really cool do you think that adds to the admiration for that era just because it looks, it looks so damn good.
2: I, I, I'm, you know, when I first started working with Jim Haley, who who Jim Urbina knows, well, you know, Jim had worked for Pete Dye for a few years. He'd worked for Reese Jones. He, you know, he worked for various architects. And one of the things that Jim said to me very, very early on, he said that there's, Uh, you can always tell uh, uh, the skill of a shaper or an architect based on his uh, skill at making the cut. And what Jim meant by that was the vast majority of people in the golf business understand how to uh, dig a hole, take that material, and build something out of it. If you take a child to the beach and give him a shovel and a pail, he won't dig a hole, or or he will, but he'll use the material to build a castle, right? He he won't build something in the sand down into it. It won't be a sub, you know, subgrade thing. Uh, it'll be built. up. He won't have great tie-ins. Won't have great tie-ins. <laughs> uh, and so that, uh, you know, that point I thought was really good. You know, Jim, uh, that stuck in my mind for forever. Was you know the the first thing we often want to do on a golf course is actually cut and, and push things down. And I, and I, you know, you say that it, it looks so much better. I, I, I didn't say I,
0: better. I, it looks more, it looks very dramatic. I mean, it, okay. and it, I, it, it and makes I, an impression.
2: We, we could have a great challenge going through, you know, old photographs and then you could pull up your Tillinghast picture and I'll pull up my, uh, you know, old Tom Morris picture from some course in Scotland and we'll say, you know, which one looks better. And, you know, one might be a parkland scene, but one of them's through a bunch of dunes and the greens down at grade and hardly has any contours at all. Uh, so again, maybe it's the site, you know, if you're working on a pretty, uh, weak site, then you have to get dramatic somehow. And that's hard to do by cutting because drainage doesn't help you and you can't see it. But on a really good site, you know, the opposite starts to become true where, uh, Building at grade is a lot more possible uh, if only you can take the time to figure it out
0: something uh, that that sounds like what, the way you're describing building at grade. Gamble Sands is is a perfect example of that. I mean, um, those greens are just Perfectly right on grade. level. It, there's right. I can't think of anyone that is you know built up or or is not just uh, maybe maybe thirteen elevated a little bit, but I'm sure it works works with the with the environment, yeah, they're, but they're, it's 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 just that it's just, just that that perfect entry into those
2: greens. Yeah, if there are any greens at Gamble Sands that aren't at grade, it's because you're not hitting a shot for whatever reason. I'm asking you to carry it over something which isn't very often. So, because that golf course is in the the true link style of my heritage, I want people to be able to putt the ball from 200 yards away uh, if they can hit it hard enough. I don't want anything to stop it. I uh, Those opportunities are rare. I mean, I, I wouldn't want anyone to think that I'm any smarter than anybody else. I mean, you can't do gamble sands on a site that has heavy soil. You can only do it on a site that's pure sand. And in this case, pure sand in the desert. So it doesn't even rain that much. You know, you, you couldn't have done that with old McDonald. It wasn't pure sand and it rains 100 inches on a good year. So the architects are generally the, the good ones at least are having to find this balance between practicality and entertainment and visuals and all these different competing factors to try and come up with the best solution to the problem
1: cuz i could do none of it well but i could <laughs> tell you that the, the the 14th hole at Bandon Dunes is just on the ground and one of my favorite holes at Bandon, it's, it is my favorite. I'll just, I'll be honest with you. It is my favorite because it's on the ground. It uses a dune as the background and it has all these wonderful possibilities. You don't have to fly it up in the air. I could bump a seven iron into the wind. I could, I, I could build those holes all day. But David, you have to admit, you don't see very many pictures of the 14th hole at Bandon Dunes. The
2: 16th hole is also a great.
1: Yeah. You just happen oh, to have it there. Yeah, <laughs> There's something over
0: to the right that kind of makes that whole work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but my yeah. point is, it just isn't as dynamic of a whole. But when you play it, it's a hell of a lot of fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The the dynamic, you know, I, I guess that's a, a real nuance, you know, the, the dynamic. It, it seems to me, the older I get, that if I can create dynamic without – Sort of punching you completely in the face. That feels really, uh, feels very appealing. You know, when we were building that corkscrew I was telling you about, you know, the, the, the guys were excited. And then my next challenge is oh, and by the way, it can't look contrived. It can't yeah. look like we did it. No. So you have to find a way of building something that sounds extremely contrived, but we want it to look like we didn't. We found this piece of ground. So how did that work?
1: And David, Derek and I have been talking about golf courses that are, aren't afraid to step out of bounds, to take a chance. And I said, you only, you only take a chance, and it's only a failure when nobody plays it. Are you afraid to take that chance uh, uh, going forward many more times?
2: You know, I, I often say to our clients uh, that uh, we are going to, in the process of designing and building your project if you want us to be really really creative we're going to make a number of missteps Uh, and the chances of us being hitting perfection on first try and yet being super creative are zero we are going to push too hard the castle course would be the poster child for that where we pushed really really hard and they've spent the last decade Tweaking and adjusting and softening here and there and making greens bigger here and there, and uh, making these little tweaks and adjustments uh, to find the right balance uh, it would have been impossible had we not pushed so hard and I would hope uh, to answer your earlier question, Derek, that you know once I'm long dead and gone, maybe somebody will come back to a a, a chat like this and understand better. Why we did what we did?
0: That's why we're having these chats. <laughs> this is this is for the ages, David. <laughs> going back on this, this to double back on Jim's question. This concept of of creativity of of artistry. You and I have talked about this as well. It seems like we're at this point now. Going back to to Sand Hills and then your you abandoned and then Pacific Dunes. These were real breakthroughs in architecture. And there was a there's this run of of creativity if you want to call it that. Um, a, a splurge of of amazing sites around the world. I don't want to say that's played out. I know there are great sites, but we but architecture is now used to amazing courses in amazing locations on sand and in the most advantageous locations. So anything that's done from here on out and that in that sense is not new it's not fresh it's not creative you just mentioned a green that you built that's a corkscrew that seems like pretty pretty fresh but is it unfair to expect you and and your peers the ones that at least care about artistry and and being creative and exploring the possibilities is it unfair to to think that there's some great breakthrough still on the horizon or is it just going to be incremental things and developments you're trying your best everybody is but it may be from someone in my position, I'm unrealistic if I think there's going to be another flashbulb moment.
2: I think, you know, 20 plus years ago, I was able to create a, a ground zero for the reintroduction of minimalist, uh, linksy golf in America, right? I mean, whether I knew it or not, Band and Dunes became the the ground zero for uh, so many other projects in the United States. Uh, in 20 years, not quite, 15 or 16 years later in the trajectory of my career, I went back and thought, you know, wh- where do I want to see this go next? I, I was influential 15 years ago. What do I want to do now? Uh, and in 2013, something like, no, even before that, maybe 2010 or eleven. I started to think about you know, golf and playability and fun and enjoyment. And I, if you go back and read many of the interviews I did back then, uh, they talk about it. No one else was talking about it. They were still looking at the hardest, most challenging golf courses. And I was changing pace, changing direction, and going somewhere different. Uh, I built a course down in Nicaragua that followed that model. And then I came to the U.S. Uh, and built Gamble Sands. Uh, and then that led to Mammoth students And in the seven years it took for those three projects to occur, we've seen a fairly major change in direction where golf, everybody is talking about playability and fun and enjoyment. And, uh, you know, the sustainability of golf from a rounds a participation perspective. Uh, I would like to think that I was instrumental in getting that conversation going. I, uh, I would hate to think that I'm 52 now and that's it. I think there's many more things will happen. There's going to be more shoes that drop uh, in the coming uh, decades. I don't think golf changes uh, quickly. I think that it's probably something we can measure in decades. Uh, And so in my 50s, I'd expect to be part of at least one or two more shoes dropping or, uh, epiphanies arriving of of me or others doing things where you think, wow! Uh, and I I think I, I have the bones of what I think the next one's going to be, uh, and and I don't think I want to tell you right the second. Uh, we already have two projects uh, on the tables that are going to try and do it, uh, and we'll we'll see. Circle back in a couple of years, though. We'll see if I uh, if I go anywhere with it.
0: You're not very good at holding your tongue. Maybe if we just wait for a, a minute or two. You'll spill
2: that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Derek. The, the sad thing is, it's not the sad thing, but the truth is that you want to try something different. You want to uh, uh, step out of the out out, out of bounds. You want to go over the property line and, and and challenge and 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 see what people will think of what you're doing. But as Gil said in our in our interview he's at his point in his career where he's willing to do that Uh, I'm not so sure that the next group of people coming up whether it's the people who work for David or the people who work for Gil and Bill if they're going to explore the the next boundary or maybe David is is just a couple years away from showing us what he has the problem is you're taking a chance (laughs) and if nobody shows up and nobody plays it, and the owner is dissatisfied, then that chance that you took uh, is all for naught.
2: Well, it, it, I agree with you. That the hardest thing is finding uh, an owner who's willing to give you that chance, uh, and then you have to have uh, some degree of confidence that that's going to work. Uh, you know, my argument at Gamble Sands in twenty twelve when I built a golf course uh, that is, uh, leans towards the average player rather than the uh, uh, low-digit handicapper. The logic back then was if you can't get the very best golfers to say this is a tough you know, challenge, then no one else will come. Agreed. Uh, and I argued back then that we were three hours from Seattle. No one's coming anyway. Uh, unless they really, really love it. And so if the average guy just comes, plays once, loses half a dozen balls, buys a shirt and never comes back, that will be ultimate failure, no matter what the best critic or the best tour pro says about it. It will be all for nothing. Uh, and so I it was easy to convince that owner uh, to let me build something for the masses uh, and see if that would work. Uh, in the end, I mean, I, I, I don't want to... Uh, it it's a, it's a lot of money that we get to spend uh of our our clients money but very often it's a very small amount of money in their world whether they're hotel developers or real estate developers or just high net worth individuals the the golf course is often uh, it costs less money to build it than it did to buy the land and so you know, if you really, really screwed up, you know, and he's got the permit and the irrigation's in and the maintenance facilities done and the clubhouse is there, if I really screw up, they'll, they'll hire just call Jim, Jim Urbina. <laughs> yeah.
1: As Bill Coor called me, the big pink eraser. I'll I'll be right over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jim does bring up a good point, though, about in the topic of creativity. David, this has been in your kind of your playbook since the beginning, it, you know, I think that's the kind of person that you are. You want to drive yourself. You 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 don't want to stay in the same place. You want to come up with new ideas. Gil mentioned it to us. He feels it's an obligation to to experiment to push the boundaries, whatever term you want to call it. You all you both have earned that though. You've gotten to this place in your career where where people will listen to you. A, a client, an owner, will more likely afford you that opportunity. I always wonder. I think, I think I'll compare it to the restaurant scene. You have all these great chefs that are trained. They're Michelin-starred restaurants. They're European-trained. They worked in the finest restaurants. They've opened their own restaurants. It's the, it's high cuisine. It's great. But oftentimes, in whatever market you're in, the most interesting restaurant is from the the chef who comes from Peru, and you've never tasted that cuisine before. And he just opens a little shop, a little restaurant, and it, the food's so dynamic, and it's new, and everybody wants to go there. It's these... Outside influences; these young people, or, or or somebody with a completely outside of the box perspective that comes in, and provides something that the public didn't even know that they they were missing. I don't. I wonder if that's if there's an equivalency there in golf architecture. Are there young guys who, if they could even get the opportunity in the first place, be willing to bring in some kind of outside perspective and create something that we haven't seen before, or is so? accented that it seems fresh or are the guys that are in that position right now have they been trained under the Gil Hanses and the Tom Dokes and the Bill Coors where I don't know that they actually have that exotic create creative mindset to bring into it so I that's not a question but I think about that I wonder if the if the sort of the layer right under you David and Jim what what would they do if given the chance? Would they be able, willing to take that risk just as you asked, Jim?
2: I hope to the hell they are. I hope to the hell they are. They're, you kind of think they, like, if,
0: why are you in this business if you're not going to swing for the, yeah,
2: you know, Yeah, take you're not going to swing for the fences. What's the point? You know, we could all have a much easier life. You know, I, I, I think I'm smart enough. I could have gone and got a job in some finance line and made more money than I'm making doing this. Uh, I do this because I passionately love it and I want to build stuff that the peers I respect look at and go, oh shit, that's good. That's really good. Because I do that to them. I go look at the stuff they've done and whether I love them or hate them, I, I look at it and I judge it and say, it's probably really good, you know, or it is really good. I, I, I love the thought of our profession being art. And and if art stops trying to develop, then is it? it's not art anymore right? It has to keep moving forward and change direction and twist and turn. Uh, And if it doesn't do that, then it, it, it just becomes a job. It's just engineering. Uh, And so I, I guess that's why I feel so passionate about the template whole discussion is I see that potentially being uh, a reduction of the art that's involved in our business. Uh, And we talked about it at length earlier. So, that they're really templates in a very loose way they, they they can be massively adjusted and and that's where the art still lies but the art in it is incredibly important to me and I think for the golfer that it's not talked about often enough that golf is much more than just a mere sport of hitting a golf ball for the average golfer there's an interaction with a landscape that isn't talked about enough, isn't appreciated by our profession. That if that landscape isn't speaking to that golfer, they, it lacks something. They're, they don't get that pleasure uh, synapsis tickled the way they would do otherwise. Uh, and so it's incredibly important for us to do that. And that's where the golf courses that have been built in the last 20 years are so multidimensional. You know, I've often described the golf courses from Bandon Dunes onwards like oil paintings rather than watercolors. And I think the golf business in the uh, 70s, 80s, and early 90s was a bit more like watercolors, and now it's gone back to oil paintings. So much so much texture, so many layers, uh, so much more intriguing and interesting, so many more things to pick up on each time you you view and enjoy that landscape that you don't see when you go play, you know, a golf course circa 1987 that's got 120 bunkers and 15 ponds and is bright green grass everywhere. It's very generic.
1: <laughs> very boring. Yeah. Sorry. But she see, Derek, I think David can agree with me or not. Our dilemma in creating works of art is that we're constrained by scorecard, 18 holes, must return nines, I'm sorry, must return back to the clubhouse from where you once started. And because of those constraints, I don't know that we're going to ever totally rethink the artistry of golf. But I think once we take the constraints away, one of my ideas is called base camp golf, where you start in one spot and you end up, by, by design, 18 holes later, somewhere else in the world. Hmm. And because nobody's going to buy the idea that you start here and, oh, by the way, you got to come back here That's a constraint. So art is not abstract. It's following a form and a function. So if we can get rid of some of the constraints in golf, I think we can explore a new style, more artistic golf. But then again, maybe i only get do one of those <laughs> i'll be the emerson armstrong the founds the 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 uh, uh crump of pine valley it, oh jim that was so good you're only gonna do one <laughs> yeah
2: well hopefully it's not like crump and you'll die or kill yourself <laughs> jim, as you push into your 60th decade you better hurry up and do that one
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm with you man I, i'm i I'm with you, David. I'm all the way, all the way. But as, am I fair in saying that, Derek? Because of these artistic constraints, uh, maybe we are not evolving as fast as we could.
0: Yeah, Jim. I said this in to you before. I think in our last or last podcast. But I think what I think what what you and and Tom did, what Bill did, what Dave has done is, and trains the wrong word. Probably, it's, I could probably better think this, but you've in a sense, trained another generation of developer and owner to understand what is possible, what, what, it, what can work, to take those constraints away. The Mike Kaisers paved the way. You guys took what he gave you and made something so remarkable that people from around the world come to see it. They've shown a different way to play golf. The owners of the future, if they're smart, will look at that and take lessons from that and build more or develop – choose to develop more courses like that when possible than the developers of the 80s and 90s did who were trying to make, as David said, really difficult golf courses. And that was the, the sign of success is is how difficult it was or how ornamental it was or, or w- w- how many houses it could sell. In a sense, you're also training a new generation of golfers. It's over a 20-year period, golfers that go to Bandon Dunes or Streamsong or Cabot are exposed to this style of golf. Maybe they maybe they go overseas and play and they come back. And typically what we've seen so far is they're happy to go back to their own American-style golf course. But I think over time, as as the generations turn over, a new generation of player will develop as well, and there'll be more excitement about taking these this style of golf in conjunction with developers who are more excited to produce this style of golf, and will start to bring this gym, as you and I talk about a lot, Back closer to home. That's my hope, and I think that's what's happening. But it could take another <laughs> ten or fifteen, twenty years for it to really, for this to really saturate the golf market. This rediscovery of golf and what golf could be uh, uh, could could happen, but it's going to take more time. But it, but I think the wheels are starting to turn.
2: I, I think that you know we're we're at a point in time. There's a really intre- interesting. A confluence of of circumstances right at this exact moment in time for the golf business. You know we're we're seeing uh, the coronavirus has has shown participation jump uh, as people realise that their golf membership really is a valuable thing to have. Uh, we see Top Golf over the last decade go from strength to strength to strength. Fifty million people participated in Top Golf last year. Eighty percent plus don't even play golf. So we we have a a confluence, everything tells us that the average golfer wants to participate, the coronavirus shows us that, and the non-golfer wants to participate, Top golf teaches us that. So what are we missing? And I would say what we're missing is very simple. The the hamburger we're serving, they just don't like it. It doesn't mean they don't like hamburger, they just don't like that particular hamburger. And that hamburger we're serving is this run-of-the-mill golf course that's got no imagination, it's too hard for them, it uh, takes too long to play, uh, it's just uninspiring. But we have thousands, tens of thousands of those hamburgers all over the United States, and they're not going away anywhere soon. They've been permitted, the infrastructure is already in. We have to find a way to take those crappy hamburgers and turn them into the crazy cheeseburger that everybody wants. And it's already half cooked. just got to get creative people to finish it do it properly make it into something cool you know we've just done a remodel of a course in seattle 110 acre site 18 holes 6100 and something yards now why in god's name would i go remodel a golf course like that had a cool view really interesting membership golf course vanilla really vanilla and all we did was we brought creativity to it. We dreamt up completely new ideas, new things for them to, new puzzles for the mice to try and figure out. Uh, and they absolutely loved it. And it didn't cost very much and it didn't take very long. Uh, but we had to reimagine the whole thing. The, the amount of imagination went into it was pretty high. Uh, and I think that's where the true potential lies for uh, me as I go into the last 20 years of my career and my, uh, the, the ones that will come behind uh, because new greenfield sites are going to be harder and harder and harder to come by. So the, the, the next generation needs to figure out uh, how to take an average golf course and turn it into something spectacular. And they're going to have a lot more constraints than just 18 holes in a loop, Jim. You have a lot more constraints than we had. But that's where the answer is. We know that people want to play and there are places for them to play. How do we marry those two things up?
0: That's it. I mean, you're right about that. Uh, now, was this course in Seattle, Is was that a private course?
2: Uh, yeah, but not overly private. I mean, it's not. It's no, I'm, just, I'm saying
0: up. like, that I think the challenge is taking that into in, uh, a municipality or a county or, you know, when the government levers are involved, that's... And that, but that's a good point is that that's a skill that
2: to, we that, are talking to municipality right now about doing that with municipal golf courses, uh, a relatively good. low cost. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that, uh, that has to be done. And, and that's a, a lot of people don't want to take that on. Don't a lot of people don't want to get involved with that and all the layers it's of not, bureaucracy. It's um, and it's with not the good young, business. the young, well, the young people who are going to make it in this business, they're going to have to learn how to do that. They're going to have to find a way to get really, really good at dealing with with layers and putting in bids and and you know whatever it takes to to get those public projects done. Because that's hey, that could be the biggest. Look at uh,
2: Winter Park. There's a poster child right there right? It's right in downtown Orlando. The piece of land was already there. It was super complicated. I mean, it was a hairball of a deal. And what made the difference? Was it the county putting money into it? Hell no. It was the two guys' creativity to actually do it. It wasn't the amount of money that was spent. It had nothing to do with anything other than the golf course architecture that got applied to that piece of land. And then look what happened.
0: Well, if if every municipality could could be run like Winter Park is, that would help too. But when you're talking and- about like a, a a city of Chicago with with all the that those gears that need to be greased, and you had so many all the voices in, that's a different story. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, it can be done. Uh, I, I'm not saying it can't it. be done. It's but yeah. somebody has to want to roll up their sleeves and get in there and stick their nose into it and find a way to get it done and work the levers. Uh,
2: I guess my point, Derek, uh, is that. There's a route to be had, right? There's there's an obvious scenario there. Where there's an equation that's as plain as the nose on our face that we can see participation is up. People want to play golf. It's undeniable. And we know that there's a number of unperforming golf courses out there, be they municipal or poorly run private clubs or poorly run public clubs. One way or another, there's a plethora of golf courses out there that could take vastly more capacity if only they appealed to the audience that's already out there. So how do we make it appeal to that audience?
1: And Derek, I agree with David. That it's it's out there. And there's nothing more than what I would like to do is walk home like you walk home at St. Andrews, back to town. There's, I, I would love to do that. It's how do you get people to understand that you can rethink, as David said, a nothing burger, and add some pickles, lettuce, tomatoes, onions, <laughs> and make it a super burger. But you see, David and I can see it when we walk out there. It's how do you convince the other people that you want to walk home like you do at St. Andrews, the public golf course where it all started.
0: Well, we're definitely seeing seeing a shift in the public golfer in the in the in the American golfer, the probably the maybe the international golfer too, toward a desire to wanting to have that type of experience, thanks to their being able to be exposed to golf courses like Old McDonald, Pacific Dunes, Bandon Dunes, Gamble Sands, Mammoth Dunes. These are great Winter opportunities, Bart. and 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 so the taste is there. I agree with both of you. I think there there is yeah. a taste for a better tasting burger, <laughs> a high quality, craft made, locally farmed <laughs> no, burger that's not McDonald's,
2: burger. yeah. Yeah, and I, I, that, that burger doesn't have to be, a, you know, a, a Michelin Dale. star, right? It, it just has to be quality. Yeah. Golfers want an authentic uh, experience. And, and I think the word experience is really ex- essential. The experience can't be uh, 18 holes of unmemorable nothingness. You know, it has to be something where they stand on every tee and think, wow, this is cool. I mean, what am I going to do here? Uh, and you, uh, and authentic. It can't be, you know, blue dyed water with fountains in it. Uh, <laughs> they, they want. I think they want something that's that's a- authentic. And whether that authenticity is is historical connection, uh, as is old McDonald's, or, or whether it's a unique site uh, like abandoned uh, dunes. Uh, or whether it's uh, roaming through nature like sand valley uh, i think authentic doesn't necessarily mean one thing it can mean a number of different things but it doesn't mean just contrived vanilla vanilla has to be something more
1: two bunkers on every green
0: boring.
2: yeah bunker either side of every green come on i won't even mention his name
0: <laughs> 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 david sometimes i i feel like when we talk we're like agreeing on everything, but it feels like we're like arguing with each other.
2: <laughs> you know, you know why that is? It's because I'm Scottish. <laughs> I've, I've, I've so, come to, Yeah. And I've got, a, I've seen, got some
0: Scottish blood in me too. So maybe that's You it. ever
2: seen two guys telling each other they love one another in a Scottish bar? It looks like they're just about <laughs> they're punching, punching each other. <laughs> right.
0: yeah. It's a Scottish, Scottish thing. Sweat dripping down their face and they're yeah. trembling. You, go you, you go bastard. <laughs> I love you.
1: David is bringing back the Scot to America. Donald Ross, old Tom Morris, Tom Bendelow. David Kidd is the new Scotsman for the U.S. James Braid.
2: Bring it home. (laughs) You know who won the first uh, British Open at St. Andrews? If you go to the Lynx Trust Clubhouse, they have all the winners uh, ringed around the the ceiling in the the main restaurant. You know who the first winner was at St. Andrews? Thomas... Thomas Kidd really he was and do you know why he won the first British Open at St Andrews because the weather was bad and he decided not to go fishing <laughs> <laughs> true story you can't make this up well I could <laughs> it's true <laughs> What's the, oh. what's
0: the relation by the way? I mean, there's gotta be, it is a great, 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 great something. something. There you go. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, let's leave it on that guys. That was a good talk. David, always good to uh, talk to you. Uh, I think we got our, we got our dander up. We covered some esoteric material. I think we went all the way around and got everywhere we needed to go.
1: David, thank you for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, no hopefully problem. We'll get, hopefully we'll get to discuss at some uh, at some breakfast place somewhere else someday.
2: Jim and I are going to build the next band and dunes together. <laughs> I'll be there watching. Thank All right. you.
0: All right, Jim. That was a pretty good talk. David McLay Kid is is always on form, and I, I think I think we kind of got beyond. Sort of the superficial level of a discussion. I think we drilled down on a few subjects, and I th- I think that was one of the most, to me anyway, that was one of the most engaging podcasts we've done. Is because we got really we got the chance to talk to somebody who is who is willing to be a little controversial. He doesn't mean to do it on purpose, but but he's very frank about his opinions on things, and that is the basis for good conversation. Is when you can get. People talking around a subject and not being afraid to share th- their beliefs in it. And one of the things we talked about that I thought was was most interesting was this dynamic between uh, artistry and, and, and critical acclaim in a way versus commercial success. And in this context, that would mean how many people like to play your golf courses. And there's a balance there. I, I mean, I think... So many people working in the golf design business, going back probably as long as the profession has been around, have tried to tailor their architecture toward the tastes of the masses, so to speak, toward the golfer, whether it was building very practical golf courses that could accommodate a lot of people, whether it was looking at what Pete Dye was doing. And and mimicking that style, it's a it's a very it's very much a follow the leader profession, and that works in a lot of times because you're producing golf courses that people like. People see what see something they like, they play it. Architects notice that it's getting played, so they, there's more of this stuff. D- David McClay kids always tried to kind of break that pattern, and yet at the same time, by breaking that pattern and kind of like cutting against the grain, he's created. From art, he has created this product, certainly at, at Gamble Sands and certainly at Mammoth Dunes. And I'm, I'm sure at other places, he's created this product that is beloved by people. It's wildly popular. So he must extract uh, satisfaction out of that. But at the same time, I, you know, as an artist, you, you might be saying, wow, did I not take it far enough? Did I not push myself artistically far enough?
1: Well, we went, all, we went everywhere with David, and, and that was the joy of, of talking with him, and I agree with you on that. But for me, listening to David, what, what, what compelled him to continue on, I thought was, the, was the, one of the most interesting things, and, and this is me speaking for him, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought the greatest joy he got was bringing the greatest pleasure to the most people. And what else could you ask for in a golf course architect, golf course designer, is that you're bringing the greatest joy to the greatest m- amount of people. Uh, can I read this quote from, from Tillinghouse from The Course Beautiful? It's two simple rules, but I think David has covered that in, in a lot of his designs, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear it.
1: This is from A.W. Tillinghouse, The Course Beautiful. It seems to me that he who plans any golf hole should have two aims. First, to produce something which will provide a true test of the game, and then consider every conceivable way to make it as beautiful as possible. End quote. So, David, two simple rules, Tillinghast says, make it a true test of golf and make it beautiful. And David has done that everywhere he's gone, and some critics will, would, as he said, some critics would, would lash out for, for uh, and lash out is my term, not his, lash out for, for what the things he tried to do. But he has started at Bandon, a 26-year-old Scotsman, comes to America, does Bandon Dunes Resort, goes on to build other Uh, uh, widely acclaimed golf courses, Gamble Sands, as you said, Sand Valley, Mammoth Dunes, and his joy, he talked about it. How many people are playing these golf courses? They may not get critically acclaimed top 10 in the world, but the the pleasure for him, correct me if I'm wrong, was that the tee sheets were full, people were having fun, and what else could you ask for?
0: absolutely so i'm not yeah i'm not saying that he's he regrets it or that he he'd even do anything differently i just know that there's an a certain artistic sensibility that is the it, it mean the the artist almost has to create friction the true artist the true innovator you you only know if you're making progress if you're if you're ruffling feathers a little bit um and he's he's certainly not afraid to do that but at the same time he achieved his goals with Gamble Sands and Mammoth Dunes because he's giving, as you said, maximum enjoyment to the maximum amount of people. Those co- golf courses are so fun to play and replay and replay because they inspire and uh, create situations for success. And he said it about Gamble Sands. He said building this golf resort out in the middle central Washington state that's at least two hours from any place where you can fly into, or, or it is, and it's a two to three hour drive for most places in that area, the owners were maybe still believing that the, that the, the previous mindset of to be legitimized you had to be difficult, the golf course had to be challenging and and, and rough, uh, championship caliber quote unquote to to be successful. And his response was somebody you might get somebody to drive two and a half, three hours out here to play, but if they get beat up and lose balls, they're not coming back. So he yeah. he hit on this really smart theme of and you know, the golf courses don't hand you pars. You still have to hit the golf ball, but they give you a lot of ways to get the ball around a golf course. And that is a recipe for success and it's been proven at gamble sands it's been proven at mammoth dunes it was proven at the original banded dunes course and i'm sure we'll continue to see that from him but it was a real it was a real um it was kind of a uh, it, hard to say it it's kind of sad to say it but in the context of where the golf industry was it was kind of a revolutionary idea
1: you know someone asked me once if i thought that mammoth dunes was too too big too forgiving and I was, I was like, so uh, I wanted to ask him. So you want golf courses to be harder? You want the game to be harder? And you know, I take I take the things differently. Uh, when you talk about, is it too wide open? Is it is it is it too expansive? I have I've I don't get myself in too much trouble. Uh, Mackenzie, all the great golden age designers said, uh, how much fun is it to lose a ball? No fun at all. And so I have not seen Gamble Sands, but I have seen Mammoth Dunes, and I have seen a lot of his other golf courses. Open, fun, playable, Gamble Sands, beautiful sight. I don't see anything wrong with providing ample room for play if the strategy that encompasses within that ample room for play is – enticing and makes you think nothing wrong with that and you know he went from abandoned dunes and went to, on to build some great golf courses goes back to scotland to castle Stuart uh, is tested uh, in his home in, in his home grown uh, he's tested where he where he grew up uh, by building the golf courses uh, golf course next to saint andrews I don't know man it's uh, that was that's a big, big challenge, and then he comes back to America again, builds mammoth dunes, and he has gone all different directions, Derek. You can't fault him for trying, and isn't that what you would expect from somebody as David being David?
0: <laughs> yeah, and there's a difference between. <laughs> You know, there's a, I guess you could look at it two ways. I, I think some artists are just, they're locked in. They have one brilliant thing that they do and they just do it for their <laughs> whole career. And that's fine. Like that's, that's the Rolling Stones, right? You know, and, and Rolling Stones fans, don't get mad at me. I'm sure, I know, I'm sure there's like a lot of nuance in their records, but, but they play rock and roll. The Beatles, they changed it up. They would, they would reverse course. They did it on purpose. They wanted to experiment and try new things in golf design. It's the same way there. There are certain architects historically, whether it's going back 100 years or or 15 years or whatever, who they do one thing. Pete Dye essentially did one thing. He did change. He did have phases, but a Pete Dye course was a Pete Dye course. And then you have other people like David Kidd who's willing to change. And the important part of that is, Jim, he changed first. There are a lot of people who change later. They see which way the wind's blowing and then they change and they try to follow where, where the 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 popularity is. They try to follow the business and good for them if it works it works. But a true artist is the one who changes first and David's done that a couple of times. Uh maybe it hasn't always worked, but it's certainly working now. And I I would just say one more thing. You and he you and him have one one at least one thing in common and that is building at least one giant golf course you built old yeah. McDonald's that suckers big too. Yeah. You know what? I, I,
1: will never fault him for building big. Building big is fun. Not all pieces of property give you that, that chance to build big, to build wide. And the reason I love wide is that it gives you so many options with in that horizontal, as Gil calls it, that horizontal line. To, to challenge different levels of players at different times in the round. With gives you that narrowness takes it away. And so I agree. Big is fun. Wide is fun. Can you do it everywhere? Probably not. Did David maximize it at, at Sand Valley and Gamble Sands? Yes, he did. Do we need to have every golf course that big and wide open? I'm not sure. Sure. But I do know that it allows you to have strategy. It allows you to challenge different players at different times, different levels, and he did it well. And he was able to make those changes. And he got critical. He there were very there were a lot of people very critical of his designs, Castle Stewart being one of them. And yet he's come around and done different things, and not afraid, not afraid to try something different. You have to give him all his due for doing that.
0: Yeah. And just in comparing old McDonald and mammoth dunes, just to take two case examples at mammoth dunes, he provides the space for you to, to play your game, but he also wants you to hit the ball to specific areas. If you want to score, or at least if you want to make, make birdie, especially that's how he tried to design the golf course at old, old McDonald, you provided with, but that wasn't necessarily like, I, 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 let me just, I'll back up and just ask you, did the accommodating success for the resort golfer play in any way to the, to your design concepts and the way that you, you shaped old McDonald's?
1: Well, I can tell you the scale of the golf course is big. When you come over the third hole at Sahara and you see the reveal of the ocean, and the ground that lays in front of you. Anything not fitting that scale would have looked, I can't even describe to you, that it would have looked out of character, it would have looked uh, very forced, uh, very uh, unnatural. Because when you come over that reveal on the third hole and you see all of that laid out in front of you, and you see the big blue Pacific Ocean, the scale was right for a big golf course. And when you think about holes like number 6 long, based after the 14th hole at St Andrews with hell bunker. Mike wanted to make sure that even though we created features that were were in the line of play such as hell bunker, that you could technically play around it with ample width and still achieve the goal to put it in the hole. So scale played into that. But with that scale were features that that we put in place, Hellbunker being one of them, that you had to play around if you wanted to or you could play over. So the scale fit the land. Anything less than the scale that we gave you at Old McDonald would have not been complementary to the view you had of the distant west ocean. And so it fit. It was right. Everything else would have been out of scale. And yes, Mike Kaiser asked if we could have the ability to have people play around if they chose to do so, features that may have been in the line of play. And we gave them that option. The scale is right. The strategy is is uh, uh, appealing based on some of the features we put in there, like the bottle hole number 10. And so width is good. With, without any strategy, is not so good. And so you have to decide how you interject strategy in that width. And when I see holes at at, at mammoth dunes and I see pictures of of, uh, gamble sands, David put in those features that challenge your senses in that big, wide-open space. The same thing we did for old Mac, that big wide open space. And the good news, the grass at Van and Dunes Resort Fescue is so, so easy to maintain and, and to and to and to mow. It's not like a regular grass on a golf course. It uses less water, uses less everything, less mowing. They roll the greens. It it, it just fits in that scale. And I think Mammoth Dunes and Gamble Sands does the same.
0: It does. It does. The one thing at Old McDonald though is there are a lot of shots lost around the greens at Old McDonald. You have some greens like the ten you mentioned the bottle hole. That green can you know, you start getting reject. left. Yeah. I mean you the green the greens can reject you, yeah. Um the yeah. Redan hole twelve is really hard to get the ball on the putting surface there. So I don't think I think that's one of the you know, you provided width but you also still have to golf your ball really well to score at Old McDonald.
1: And I I once said to Mike, and I've used this quote many times, the spirit of adventure. (laughs) And every time I use that on Mike Kaiser, he gives me that look like (laughs) I've heard that before, Jim. (laughs) I know. The spirit of adventure. That doesn't help me when I've three-putted or (laughs) or I've fallen off the green.
0: (laughs) Three-chipped.
1: The spirit of adventure. Derek, come on. Yeah.
0: Well, there's great spirit of adventure in in, uh, David McClay Kid Courses as well. He's gotten some spectacular sights. He has designed some spectacular holes and created some spectacular moments within those holes. So um, he's just a guy that, you know, I want to, I haven't had a chance to to do this, but I want to just wind down an evening with him at a bar somewhere throwing down a few pints or whiskeys, whatever, and just, you know, have a conversation like we just had with him because he's the guy to be in that situation with you (laughs) closing out a day of golf at a bar, little food, little golf talk. That'd be the way to do it. I'd hope you'd be there too, Jim.
1: And you know, he's not afraid to tell you that's, that's the thing about David kid. He's not afraid to tell you, you may not like it. You may disagree with it, but it's always entertaining always worth the listen and you may disagree but his story his ability to come to america as a young scotsman to carve out the the niche that he has it's worth the story in itself and and all the best to him
0: well even if you are in that situation sharing a pint even if you're agreeing there there could be some some (laughs) brink of fisticuffs (laughs) it's the scottish way
1: he described it well
0: (laughs) he did yeah that was a good talk thanks to david mcclay Kid for joining us and we will be back soon with another volume of the salon thank you